Do you know why I'm wearing this? Why I'm dressed like this? I just found this amazing Instagram account by this couple, and they're they're Egyptologists, and they role play like they're in the 1920s. They role play like 1920s, like like colonial, like archaeologists, and they're like insane sex freaks. And this is really perplexing to me because, okay, one, the Egypt stuff sucks. Egypt, it's boring. That's like that's like an obsession for a seven-year-old. Uh, two. What? An entire I'm sorry, ancient I'm sorry, Egypt stuff sucks. Uh, okay. No, it I sucks. Just, I can't it with sucks. you, but okay. That's one. Two, it's like, okay, I could understand being like a weird archaeologist couple and like doing horny archaeologist stuff. I can understand being a weird Egypt couple and like into Egypt crap and cats and scarabs and things of this nature. When you mesh the two and then also a layer on being into 20s like flapper modernist shit, like that is just too much. Are they just doing the mummy? They're like, yeah, it's like re- it's like real life. The mummy vibes. Okay. Virgil, what does this have to do with your outfit? I'm getting to that. Okay. And they like go on trips you know, to Egypt every year to do Egypt. I don't even know what, because it seems like they found all the mummies already. So there's like nothing left to do, but whatever. And they like bring like, you know, the students with them. And it must be so confusing because it's not just, you know, hey, you want to share a tent or whatever. I don't know. I don't know what horny archaeologist crap would be. But it's also role-playing like you're in the 1920s. And it's also perplexing. Well, isn't that the height of archaeology? Doesn't it make some sort of sense? I mean, yeah. Yeah, it is. Like, that's when they found uh, uh, King Tut's tomb. Yeah. And there was, like, a huge thing. It was a gigantic thing. But still, I do want to hang out with them. Okay. Not to, like, have sex with them, but, like, I just kind of want them around as, like, weirdos who'd be at your party. Okay, well, I'm looking at the Instagram now, and once again, your descriptive powers have failed you because you've really undersold this costuming, I... this attire, this full-on 1920s. I mean, it's impeccable. And the photography, this is like professional photographs of what looks like a Vogue 1920s shoot of an extremely glamorous couple that horseback rides and attends flapper balls in like rhinestone blue bikinis with like ankle-length caramel dusters standing in front of that big monument in Petra. Like, this is glorious stuff. Brie, are you getting into being a horny 20s archaeologist? <laughs> are you? Do, do, are they, you, do they need a third? Because I bet you they're looking for a third, yeah. Are you not? You're seeing these photos, correct? Like, you understand the vibe that's being communicated here. <laughs> the vibe is good. I would be down for the aesthetic portion of this uh, <laughs> this project. Okay, this is this is a fun storyline. Now the election's <laughs> over. It's free getting into the horny twenty. That is play. not exactly what I committed to. <laughs> Virgil, you never said that. What this has to do with your outfit? Oh, this outfit, like I don't know. It seems kind of like an archaeologist shirt. Oh my god! Right? Seriously, <laughs> it seems like it's a white button-up would... shirt. It's just a white button-up shirt, Virgil. Well, you can't really see it. You can't really see the buttons, but they're like interesting buttons. They're like they're like stones. It's, it's wrinkled, like I'm wearing linen in the desert. And I'm wearing a corduroy blazer. I'm like Indiana Jones when he's teaching his class, oh, not my when he's goodness. off uh, screwing around. Okay. See, we have to cut all of this because like now I feel like an idiot. Yeah, you. We gotta leave. You, no, it, the idiot stuff <laughs> is left in. Introduce our guest, sir. Our guest today, continuing in our series on posters' rights, uh, last week we had Matt Brunig on, of course. This week, uh, another member of the Matt Brunig election team, Carl Bayer. Hey, hey, glad to be on here. Glad to finally talk to you, Bree. Talked to Virgil before. Same here. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost appropriate that we can't see you because your identity has been such a cause of consternation on the internet. 
Yeah, that's really perked back up in the last couple of weeks again. <laughs> so I remember encountering you, you know, pretty soon after I started using Twitter in maybe 2015, 2016. And you famously had an Alan Iverson photo as your avatar. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people seem to think that you are actually Alan Iverson. Yeah. In the same way that people think that Matt Brunig is an old man because his avatar is an old man. And people have accused you of racial cosplay and of misrepresenting yourself as a black person because I guess they think that it's really Alan Iverson posting all day. Yeah, why why are you why are you uh masquerading as an African American on the internet, Carl? <laughs> Is question one. It's baffling. You know, Matt and I both use these different avatars for the same reason, which is like, you know, five, ten years ago, that's what you did. Like everybody just had a kind of different person on there. And people still do that all the time. And especially, you know, like if you really liked a professional athlete, you'd use him. And you can look around, you can still see tons of people do that. So, yeah, at one point, people started saying that I am masquerading as a black man because I have this uh, NBA Hall of Famer, internationally known celebrity sports icon as my obby, and evidently that's fooling people. So, you know, I even have the disclaimer on there, I am not Allen Iverson. I posted <laughs> pictures of myself before repeatedly, but this is, it, this is just something that's never going to go away. Well, that's not, people don't really do that so much anymore. Now the avatars are mainly strange cartoons of yourself on accounts that weirdly love Israel. Yes. Uh, the, uh, cartoons, yeah, the pickers or whatever. Are these children doing this or are these adults? No, it's with... the IDF. It's the, it's the IDF doing this. Okay, so in, in theory, these are children. But for all we know, they could be like 50, 60-year-old men. As could you, frankly. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the thing, Carl. We, I still don't know who or what you are. And Carl, I mean, you come on Bad Faith, you're going to get the hard-hitting questions. So I got to ask you. Yeah, why, you're in the Bad Faith hot seat. <laughs> why not a white NBA player, Carl? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Bree, who's your favorite white NBA player? I could, like, name two. Maybe. <laughs> I did have John Stockton on there briefly. But, yeah, no, I can't think of any white NBA players I like. Like, I like Allen Iverson. I like Charles Barkley before then. Um, who is there? Like, who would you pick? Who would you pick, Bree? Um, Larry Bird is a white <laughs> basketball player whose name that, that I know. True. I feel like Ginobili, is that a person? They used to play yeah. for, like, he had long hair, right? No, short hair. Oh, but, did, no, but he used to have it, and then he started to thin, right? And then he cut it off. Okay, I don't know. Didn't yeah. somebody used to play for the Suns and he kind of had like a skater vibe? You're thinking Jason Kidd, I think. Or not Jason Kidd. Um, no, isn't Jason Kidd, isn't Jason Kidd like, he's the one that beat his wife, right? Jason, Jason Kidd is white. He's, he beat his, didn't he? I'm sorry. If he didn't beat his wife, please don't say that I beat his wife. He beat his wife. I don't think so. Well, I, you actually know. Did he play know. for the, the net? Uh, the You're Jersey. thinking Steve Nash. No, I'm thinking of, no, I'm not saying. Steve Nash is someone else I'm thinking of. Yes. He's a long-haired one I think I was thinking of with a skater vibe. But I yeah. didn't think he was a wife beater. This has gone off track. <laughs> this has gone off track. This has gone a little off track. We just want to know why you're doing racial cosplay. <laughs> when, uh, well, I mean, you answered you answered the question. Uh, why do you continue doing racial cosplay? <laughs> Alan Iverson is my favorite uh, athlete of all time. I've, I've even written an essay about him. Um, I just think he's very inspiring. He's Pound for pound, the highest scorer of all time, pound for pound. He has this really tragic uh, background where, you know, he faced just enormous adversity coming up through the NBA, ridiculous racism. They banned the clothes he wanted to wear. They got mad about his cornrows. They got mad about his rap album that they released. Just stuff that if it happened today, it would just be absolutely insane and we would all be horrified by it. And people forget it now, but he just, you know, like I always remember him playing in the, uh, the NBA finals against the Lakers. And they often talk about athletes just sort of willing themselves to victory. But this was a guy who was just completely physically outmatched by everybody else. And 
just throwing himself to the basket every single time, getting clobbered by Shaquille O'Neal, getting multiple injuries on there. And he literally did will himself to that first win. So I think he's just a very inspiring guy. So you identify with him as a hardworking iconoclast. So for listeners who aren't familiar with you or are only familiar with you as a racial cosplayer, how, how would you identify yourself? How would you introduce yourself? What do you want people to know about you and your work? I'm, I'm just a poster and a blogger, basically. I've, I've been blogging for a very, very long time under different names since at least 1999. And I started blogging under Carl Bayer about, I guess it's been about six years now. I run my little blog. I tweet out links to the articles. Sometimes some other magazines pick me up, but I've never worked in media or anything like that. I'm just kind of a independent out guy out there saying stuff. And that's really the most you can say about me. Just a hardworking salt of the earth poster. Yeah. Working in the posting mills day in, day out. You know, I'm not in it for the money or the glory or anything like that. Certainly not getting anything out of that. It's just posting for the sake of posting. And that's the best kind of posting, isn't it? Lately, Mm. you have embarked on a a posting project Mm. that has become one of the most important pieces of journalism in (laughs) the past year, I would say. Well, thank you. Uh, you've, you've broken this story wide open. I'm talking, of course, about the Data for Progress Cabinet Tracker. Yeah. Now, we might have to rewind a little bit. What is Data for Progress? So Data for Progress kind of builds itself as a think tank. A lot of times they're, they're more of a polling firm, so they'll commission these polls from like YouGov or I think I'm not sure if they're actually doing anything in house now. At first, they were just commissioning polls, but uh, Mm -hmm. they'll they'll commission polls from YouGov on various, you know, progressive issues and frame them in certain ways and say, hey, maybe you should run on this. I'm not always impressed with the quality of polling and some of the interpretations they make. So. For example, they'll say stuff like, you should run on climate change because everybody, uh, this issue is very popular. But then you look at it, you see that it has a high approval rating, but it's not a priority for voters at all. So they'll do, mm-hmm. they'll do stuff like that with their polling that I'm a little skeptical of sometimes. But anyway, aside from the polling, they also have this sort of operation where they'll advocate for policy and then sometimes they'll dip their toes into electoral stuff at first they said they weren't going to but then they did and they'll endorse various or uh, no i don't think they're really endorsing various people but they'll de facto uh, really campaign and promote people and so they had during the primaries they had like Inslee posting stuff on their blog uh, and stuff like that. It really sort of, um, every once in a while, I'm a little curious about how that actually uh, works with campaign finance law. They're actually <laughs> posting stuff to the blog uh, as communications like that. They have their hands in all kinds of pots. And it's basically, it seems like a relatively, It's a, I think it's a smaller operation than they present themselves as. It's largely Sean McElwee and then a couple of other people. And then they have this huge orbit of like fellows who are supposedly part of the think tank, but it's like a lot of think tanks do where they sort of attach themselves to names, but the names aren't necessarily involved in anything they do. So it's kind of a reciprocal relationship where uh, you say, okay, you get to be a fellow for my think tank, and maybe we'll send you, you know, $100 if you weigh in on a paper we're about to post out. And in return, we'd like you to uh, promote our material and stuff like that. And that seems to be the usual arrangement they have going. And the good faith reading of Data for Progress is, you know, this is this is an earnest attempt by progressives to move the Democratic Party to the left, right? Like that's how they position themselves. That's how McKelvey positions himself as a yeah, as a progressive. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He 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 sort of positions himself as the progressive knower. And whenever you see like a quote of his in media, uh, he'll be sort of the voice of the left or the voice progressive. Or yeah. Whatever. 
Yeah. Yeah. He's an aggressive. Like it's it's. I mean, the whole thing kind of reads like a, a, a just just an operation to get him in in news articles as the voice of the left. Yeah. Yeah, that's and and you can see how it's become a real crutch for certain reporters and stuff like that. Where you know he's he's texting with these journalists and talking to them all the time, maintaining these very close communications with them, and so they know that if they need a quote from the left, they don't have to really like dig through Jacobin or DSA or any other media or academics or anything like that to find out uh, who they can talk to. They can just talk to their old friend, Sean, and that makes it easy for them. And that's how we get so many articles trumpeting how many overtures Joe Biden has made to the left in his cabinet picks. Yeah. 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 And uh, so, you know, for a guy who, and again, this is, this is, you know, this is what they say their project is Mm -hmm. uh, for a guy who says, you know, I'm moving the democratic party to the left by, you know, commissioning these polls and, writing these papers and posting and being quoted in news articles, uh, the actual things that he says are incredibly sycophantic to the Democratic Party establishment. Uh, I remember him saying as early as maybe it was April of this year that, you know, Bernie should drop out before half the states had even, you know, had primaries. Bernie should drop out and start thinking about, you know, what concessions he'll get from Joe Biden. At the very beginning of the primaries, so not even in the, and Brie, I think you actually wrote the counterpoint to this uh, in in these times, I believe. This was last October 2018. There was a point counterpoint where they were asking, oh, yeah. what should the last strategy be going into the primaries? And Mekowee's argument was that we should not rally behind somebody. We should keep the field open. He says, you know, I could live with a Joe Biden. Or a Beto was the other person back then. But e- even back then, he was sort of sort of preparing the ground and being like, you know, like I what I wrote at the time. And I think this was Bree's argument, too. But basically, I thought that we needed to rally behind Bernie immediately. And McAwee kind of hedged his bets throughout the primary and then, yeah, like you said, uh, towards the end, he he very briefly pivoted. First, he, he was open-minded about that. Then he became a Warren guy. Then he pivoted very briefly to Bernie bro guy. At like I'm talking like a matter of weeks. And then he sort of got out and became a Biden guy. Yeah, I had completely forgotten I wrote that. <laughs> I'm looking at it now. And you're right. I was unsurprisingly all in for Bernie. Uh, it seemed obvious to me what the feelings were. I think this was about a month before Warren's Native American yeah. genetic test, DNA test uh, video dropped. A video which, by the way, it's almost impossible to find on the Internet anymore. Yeah, it's been memory hold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it really um, has been. It's surprising. Yeah, yeah, I, I nobody asked. Nobody saved that? I asked around uh, a month or two ago and somebody dug it up for me and tweeted it at me, but I, now I don't remember where it is again. If someone, if someone, if one of our listeners has it, uh, pop it in the, the message box in the Patreon. Yeah. Uh, and sh- so Sean McKelvey is also kind of a ridiculous figure. Uh, he's been the subject of these incredibly excruciating profiles. Yeah. As uh, as the voice of young left or the voice of social. I don't know if he identifies as a socialist or whatever, but it no. shows up well, in the articles. He did briefly. Well, he was he was being like a communist guy briefly. Like in really in 2017, he was all like big means of production guy and uh, t- tweeting out like guillotine jokes and stuff like that. Yeah, he's a communist guy who posted Abolish Ice, and now he just gets quoted in news articles saying, this is a really smart move from Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> yeah. You, have, yeah. Uh-huh. you remember when New York Mag did that big Democratic Socialist spread? Uh, and it, yeah. it followed his, 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 his happy hours at some mm-hmm. bar in, I don't know, probably Brooklyn. I'm not sure. Uh, no, it's in the Lower East Side. Okay, excuse me. <laughs> I don't mean to besmirch <laughs> your, <laughs> your home. <laughs> Virgil. Uh, oh no! I'm sorry. The East Village. It's in the, the East Village. Okay, but it was largely framed around him as our leader, and at the yeah. time, I didn't think too much of it. What I understood of him was that he was a lefty, and that he seemed to have connections and ties to all these people, and he did seem to be part of the community. And it was it was genuinely shocking to me when that 
revealed itself not to be the case. He's some guy who self-promotes and he posts. And this has gotten him into a little hot water. It's, it's, it's drawn the ire of, how shall I put this, actual activists or actual socialists who re- read these puff pieces about him where he says, like, yeah, abolish ice, I invented that. And they're like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah. who doesn't do anything except be quoted in news articles. I have a quote in front of me, and this is this is one of my favorite Sean McElwee quotes. This was from 538. I'll clearly support whoever the nominee is, McElwee told me. This is yeah, 2018. <laughs> I think all of these people can be moved. They're pieces on a chessboard that's so much larger than them, and I want to be helping move those pieces. He's not a chessboard. I love his chess metaphors. He does this all the time. This t- twisted, I'm the puppet master. Really thinks of himself as Peter Baelish. It's great. So just a ridiculous self-promoter and just a lot of like cockamamie bullshit and probably just angling for a job at the end of the day. The the counterpoint is going to be, you know, he was the chosen one. He's the one that um, the media reaches out to and the rest of us are just salty for not having as much exposure. So what is it about him and his predictions that substantively makes him problematic? So what I have done here with this pro- with this project and sort of my concern here is that with with this project in particular, if you look at Data for Progress put together a list of supposed candidates for uh, Biden's office and the way they promoted it, they've talked about they want this to shape uh, his decisions and inform them and stuff like that. So it's clearly supposed to be them influencing him. Yeah, these are the, the progressive candidates yeah. uh, that Biden could pick for his cabinet. They put out this booklet uh, back in July. Yeah. And for each cabinet position, they offered like four or so options. Yeah. But then when you look at it, it's just it's not serious at all. Like it's one of these like tweets you see every once in a while where somebody is rolling out their dream cabinet and they're like, you know, Michelle yeah. Obama for uh, secretary of state. And bring out Jimmy Carter from retirement or some, you know, just like <laughs> it, it, bizarre stuff like they're, you know, they're they're playing like AOC as their uh, delegate to the U.N. and stuff like that. Or people just who have really no real background in any of these positions at just. They're progressive celebrities. Yeah, and also a lot. Some of them are not actually, you know, progressives. As you know, slippery as that term is, like Tom Steyer is one of them. Yeah, or I mean, I, I'm I'm going through these. I'm looking at them right now. So, like for example, Homeland Security, Julian Castro. Like, what? Why is he being no. promoted? What's his background <laughs> with this? It doesn't make sense. Backgrounds haven't, you know, the fact that people haven't been, you know, traditionally qualified for roles certainly hasn't stopped Joe Biden from making all kinds of appointments <laughs> so far. You know, uh, Buttigieg is being sent to China purportedly. You've got. Um, oh, thank God. Uh, thank God. They, 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 will, they, will, they will get his head straight. Oh, and he'll learn well, about damn time. And he'll learn the language in about a week. Well, that's what yeah. all the super fans are saying. Oh, it's going to be so annoying when he comes back speaking both Thander and Cantonese. Um, but, you know, they've got Marsha Fudge, who apparently is very qualified to be um, Secretary of Agriculture, being put in HUD, a move that a lot of, you know, the CBC is upset about and characterizing as kind of a, a racist move. Like, they, you know, you put, where do you put black people, labor or HUD? Yeah. Ah, but here's the rub. Here's, here's the controversy on that. Uh, so, I mean, this list is this list is is there. And, you know, these again, these are self-appointed, you know, th- left think tank people who are like w- like hip on Twitter. Yeah. Who uh, I mean, I don't know who funds them. Also, that's the other thing. I have but, some guesses. Uh, that's them. Yeah. Th- well, we, well, we can, we, we can get to that speculation. <laughs> yeah. But these are uh, this was the attempt of saying you know, uh, the attempt at saying, you know, we're going to push by the left and here's how we're going to do it. You know, we're going to we're going to fight for like these nominees that we just like pulled from our freaking Twitter feeds yeah, uh, to be in his cabinet. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, you began a project mm-hmm. uh, a few weeks ago called the Data for Progress uh, Cabinet Tracker, mm-hmm. where this and again, this was a little known document. This is like some bullshit that Data for Progress churns out. And they're all really proud of and they want to be in a news article, yeah. like just another political article about it. Uh, but you remembered it. Yeah. And as after Biden won and he's, you know, it started the news of his uh, appointments started coming out. Mm-hmm. 
you started tracking how well Data for Progress has yeah. uh, been able to influence the Biden uh, cabinet. Yeah. And, you know, like one of the big pushbacks I've been getting on this is people say, well, this person wasn't on the list, but they are a pro- they are a progressive in some sense. But all I want to do is I want to have some way of measuring are they actually succeeding in what they've set out to do or not? This is their deliverable. This is what they've set out to say, okay, we're going to try to get these people in. And so it's a very objective way of measuring how they're doing according to their own terms that they set. And whether other nominees are progressive in some sense is a completely different question. I want to know if they're succeeding in you know, the, in theory, they were, they're like the guys who are in the room and they spend a whole lot of time ridiculing socialists and leftists who are too critical of Joe Biden by saying, you know, we're, we, we're in the room because we aren't here uh, attacking him constantly. We have his back during the general election. Yeah, we're playing the game. We're working within the system. Yeah. We know better than you. So I want to see what results they're getting from this. And it doesn't seem like they're getting very many at this point. Even Bernie Sanders seems to be a little bit at the end of his rope. He went on TV. It was yesterday as of when we we're recording this, but it probably will be last week and said pretty firmly progressives have gotten nothing. And it was progressives, including 30 to 40 percent of the electorate that supported him, that yeah. obviously were pivotal in, in Biden getting elected, who knocked the doors, who did the things. And there has been zero representation in his cabinet, despite what Sean McElway and the other others who are kind of keeping for this amorphous definition of progressive say. And in truth, if it wasn't for the hard work of a lot of progressive grassroots organizations who got young people involved in the political process, working class people involved in a way that we have not seen, uh, Joe Biden would not have won that election. And I think uh, that's pretty clear. And uh, my point has been from day one uh, that uh, those voices, that movement, uh, deserves representation uh, in the cabinet. Uh, And if your question is, have I seen that yet? Uh, No, I have not. I've seen some good appointments. Uh, people that I like. I think people who are really, really smart, experienced, uh, but I have not seen uh, people from the progressive movement, per se, uh, in that cabinet. Yeah. So you've been doing this for a few weeks now, since since late November, I believe. And one of the joys, one of the great joys of Twitter right now, maybe probably this is the only good bit, going on right now is that every time a new cabinet member is released you update this this graphic you've made on the cab you update the cabinet tracker yeah like uh, it's like watching one of those prices right games and it's just showing them the, their number of losses progressively go up yeah yeah they have yet to get a hit they are 13 and oh right now uh with 13 and oh or 0-13, I guess. Yeah, 0-13 with 60 proposed nominees rejected on their list. So Unbel- Unbelievable. Didn't they claim one? But it was a, they basically yes. uh, retroactively <laughs> put the person on their list? On, on the 8th, I was writing up that they got their first win with uh, Marsha Fudge for HUD. And I was about to put it out, and then a friend of mine caught me at the very last minute and said, Carl, look at this previous version of their list. It did not have her name in it. So we started digging and looking at archived versions of their list and stuff like that. And we figured out that they just added her. It had to have been in the last few days. And, you know, in the last few days was when this news broke that she was a front runner for the position, that she was already going to get it. They were already talking about who they were going to replace her with and stuff like that. So it looks a whole lot like Data for Progress it went from we are shaping the Biden administration to we are promoting whoever the Biden administration picks for these offices. And we're quietly adding them in retrospect as, hey, yeah, this is a progressive person who we like. So it's a way of sort of running up their own numbers, but it's also a way of running cover for Biden as well. 
they did this very like they didn't mention that they were doing this. One of the the author of the document actually bragged about it on Twitter that they had her on the list and they quietly removed the date from their uh, project thing to make it look like it wasn't a dated document anymore. Mm. So it seems awfully suspicious to me. It's it's a living document. <laughs> much much like the Republican candidates in the Georgia gubernatorial races, they're uh, trading yeah. on insider information. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The tweet itself was uh, the tweet was by Aiden Smith, one of the co-founders. Mentioned Fudge in the Progressive Cabinet Project memo for Data for Progress. She's done a lot for public housing in her district, and I'm glad to see her in the position. And then post a screenshot of the doctored document. Yeah. Where she was added after it appeared she was the front runner yeah. for the position. Yeah. Which leads us to assume that the Data for Progress guys are aware of the Carl Bayer Data for Progress <laughs> cabinet tracker and are not trying to game the tracker. It seems that seems entirely possible. It seems like what they're up to. They're trying to cover for themselves because this is become such bad publicity for them. You know, it's every single time I tweet this out, a lot of people start talking about it and it becomes this big embarrassment for them again. So, and it's, I can understand why this is very much central to their play for relevance. They have to position themselves yeah. as influential within the Biden administration. And if they can't even do that, then what's the point? What are they here for? Why doesn't yeah. it ever occur to anybody? And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm naive. So, you know, please tell me if that's the case. But it seems to me one way to be influential is to be, just be a colossal pain in the tuchus and yeah. speak truth to power and say what you know and believe to be true and call people out and criticize and get publicity around legitimate critiques of the campaign. And maybe that's wrong. And obviously, you know, there's only so much you can do <laughs> on Twitter. But it just seems never to occur to anybody that kind of being an outside agitator is a way to go. And everyone in the world seems to be currying influence. And the few people who aren't are just enormously marginalized in a way that we ne wouldn't necessarily have to be if we had more people in our ranks. We're just willing to do the right thing. Yeah. Unless you're trying to get a job on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Or you're trying to get, you know, money from from quote unquote, you know, progressive donors. I'll be honest, I'm not particularly optimistic about being able to get Biden to do anything. I mean, this was picks like this sure. were a fate accomplished as soon as he got yeah. the nomination. Like this was always yeah. going to happen. And so are a lot of his policy moves and political moves for the next four years. So I'm not all that optimistic that we can really push him around much either way but i just think that you know we have to be honest about our politics if nothing else and i don't like this idea of sort of saying okay yeah i'm a progressive but i'm going to strategically adopt this right-wing biden position because maybe that means he'll be friendlier to me and that maybe that will somehow move the Overton window or whatever chess master scheme Sean McAwee has going on. Like <laughs> it, it seems silly and it also doesn't seem honest to me. So I, that's one good thing that I think is coming out from this tracker is we're sort of showing how ridiculous this whole project of trying to influence his cabinet actually is. Because he, he has to do two things, right? One is demonstrate to the left that he actually is influential or what he's doing is working. He's on their side, you know, da da da. And because this is, this is supposedly the source of his, uh, I don't know, his influence is, his, like the, the, we're the pieces and he's the chess master. And, uh, but the other thing he has to do is, is demonstrate to the, the establishment types that, well, okay, he is, you know, I am an influential guy, I'm an influential guy on the left, uh, I'm not just some rando yeah. who just started getting quoted in news articles. Or maybe he doesn't. Maybe all of this just can only, it, as long as it is written in Politico, then like that's as good as true. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. I think that's right. I, it, it's, it's very it's, sickening. I mean, who else is there? I mean, they've, they've, got, they've done a really good uh, job. Me? me? You could quote me. <laughs> but that's I, I, we have oh, email. People email us all the time and they're saying, hey, can, Brie, can we get a quote from Bree on this? It's like, hey, I'm right here. 
<laughs> I'll give you a quote. I will give you a quote any damn time. I will give a political quote on anything. Bridget, at any time. You should feel free to write back to those emails and offer yourself up. I should just start. Yeah, I should just start a s- guessing at which political reporter is going to be writing which article. You kind of guess what they're going to churn out next, and just like preemptively email them. Or maybe I should just. Yeah, I'm going to start harassing all every political reporter. I mean, the fact that in the wake of the Nira Tandon brouhaha, I got so many inquiries, like me in particular, I think really does speak to the fact that at least the perception is there's not a deep bench of leftists to go to, or somehow, oh, yeah. or, or somehow that I have been given the imprimatur of legitimacy by having worked in a senior position on the Bernie campaign and therefore mm-hmm. I'm palatable enough or some palatable enough or something. But that, that it's a problem. Like I shouldn't have five people asking me for the exact same quote about near and punch fast, like near yeah. and punch fast. You don't need a quote from me on that. Why don't you do something more substantive and also talk to a broader array of leftists and also don't just come to me for the salacious quote, come to me to actually talk about the fact that Biden has, has misrepresent or, or failed to me- represent any progressive in any pick at the same time that he's putting Cindy McCain on his transition team. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, Brie, if you don't give that quote, where are they going to get the quote? Right. You get it from Sean McElwee. And I actually have uh, right here from CNN an article headlined, progressives are picking their fights with Biden. Nara Tannen's nomination likely won't be one. Yeah. Uh, here's a quote. <laughs> Data for Progress co-founder Sean McElwee joked that his initial reaction to her selection was that it was beautiful to have a poster in the cabinet, a wink at her, oh God, a wink at her occasionally chaotic social media presence. But his ultimate judgment was a pragmatic one. If people look past whatever their Twitter grievances are, they will recognize that a band of possible outcomes became reality in March, and they were then were further narrowed in November, McKelvey said. And within that band of possible outcomes, Tandon is, I think, one of the better outcomes. Also, by the way, if that band is narrowing, then you're not doing your fucking job. Right. Then you're fucking failing. That's so debasing. That's so debasing of Sean because when he says when he he when he talks about Twitter grievances with Mira, what he specifically has in mind is people being mad about the Matt Bruni firing from Demos. He was laid off from Demos too. Sean used to work yeah. there too, so now he's trivializing that for the sake of this little internecine burn. He was there when Matt was fired, mm-hmm. which you know we covered on this show. Yeah, and, and you know he didn't say anything about it which is very yeah. craven. And because he, you know, he was also a poster. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, it's sick of him to be so dismissive of like, like internet grievances. When you're, motherfucker, you're famous for claiming to have invented a hashtag. Yeah. That, that did nothing. Wait, what was his hashtag? That did absolutely, abolish ice. Oh, he's supposed to have invented that? He's supposed to have invented it. Well, how's, how's that going? How's that going? <laughs> well, look, also the fact that there are very substantive grievances. Like, I happen to think it is a big deal that Neera Tandon punched Bernie Sanders' campaign manager. I, I'm not going to drop that. That's yeah. any boss assaulting any employee is a big deal. I happen to think it's a big deal that she outed an employee that had made a sexual harassment complaint. I like. I think that's a big deal. But I also think that it's an enormous deal for her to have talked about repeatedly cutting quote unquote entitlements. I think it's an enormous deal in the context of this cataclysmic economic crisis that we're in you know it's disturbing to see that McElway can position himself as a progressive but also let these articles characterize the objections to Neera Tandon as being so superficial in nature this is one of the things that I've found really actively destructive about his just his whole persona and to a lesser extent data for progresses because they claim that he's constantly positioning himself in opposition to this uh, left that he describes as, you know, trivial and internet obsessed and unserious and stuff like that. And this is delegitimizing the very people who he's supposedly giving a voice to. Like, again, what's the point of Sean McElwee if he's not speaking for all of these people who he's constantly running down? We don't need, like, centrist think tank wonk number 5,276. Like, what's he bringing to the table if he's not doing that? Unserious is what these people will be saying to anyone who criticizes cutting entitlements, or cutting a deal with Mitch McConnell. 
Yeah. Raising the retirement age. That's not serious. Yeah. I mean, it's sick. And it's also it's sick that the thin gruel of a Sean McElwee quote is enough to come out with a bullshit news article that, oh, progressives love these cabinet picks. Progressives yeah. are fine with Neera Tandon. Yeah. No controversy here. Yeah. Who's that for? Is that is that is just is that just quietus for uh, freaking DC, you know, shitheads? I guess. I mean, I, do they have to believe that? I, I think it's I think it's largely to make the, these people feel like they're on the right side of history. I think it's just mostly fan service for them at this point when they roll out articles like that. I think it's also a lot for 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 like. I, we need to come up with a better word than normie because I don't mean it patronizingly at all. But just like regular people who aren't following this stuff all the time. You know, five years ago, if I read an article saying that Joe Biden was putting progressives in the cabinet, I would say, great, Joe Biden's putting progressives in the cabinet. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't yeah. have such a deep-seated distrust of these outlets because I wouldn't know how they work. I, do, I wouldn't know who the bylines are and what their biases are. It's on, on some level we can complain and complain, but it's ultimately incumbent on us and other, you know, progressives in the me- true prog- leftists, you know, in the media, to figure out a way to make clear what the real positions are to the to the public, and that is a extremely daunting task because it's not just one outlet or two outlets; it's it's all of them who are kind of funneling this. And this is where we get to this question of, and this has come up a lot in the last couple of weeks, the using right wing media outlets and yeah. you no know, Glenn Greenwald went on Fox and gave a really, you know, incisive breakdown on the problems with Neera Tandon. And there's been a lot of chum in the water for right wingers with these criticisms of Neera. And you can argue, why are you feeding the piranhas? But ultimately if that's the outlet that is going to air legitimate grievances about the candidate, it's hard to parse whether or not it's a problem to go ahead and do that. Because it's important that people know. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I hesitate to talk about Fox as a right wing outlet just because that often seems to imply in the minds of people that uh, stations like CNN and NBC are not right wing outlets. Yeah, fair uh, enough. <laughs> when they absolutely are. And so a lot of times the choice here is not am I going to go on a right wing outlet, but it's which one am I going to go on? Am I going to go on the one, like, am I going to go on Chris Hayes show, which regularly hosts David Froome and Ruben and people like that? Um, Or am I going to go on some Fox show and be allowed to give some kind of, you know, modest critique of empire and militarism and stuff like that? I would take the latter every time. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, there was a time when I would be more hesitant and kind of back down to some of those criticisms. And, you know, there are people who don't like that I go on the hill. Yeah. We live in a world where leftists, progressives accepted Barack Obama's pivot on campaign finance reform once he won the primary in 2008 because they thought he shouldn't unilaterally disarm. And now they want the left to, to, quote unquote, unilaterally disarm over simply using a media outlet, which is a much lower staked issue than whether or not we're actually going to push for campaign finance reform, which is at the root of basically all of the the, the enormous gap between what people actually want in this country and what our, both parties deliver. Yeah. And I just, I do, I do not get that. I do not get that. If you are capable, if your argument is straight, if you are prepared to push back against the right wing framing that is going to try to co-opt what you're saying on Fox News, then you absolutely should go on in, in my humble opinion and you're it's a delegation of your responsibilities not to yeah i mean you have to be you have to be prepared to argue with them especially if they're you know you you have kind of two kinds of interviews you have the hostile interview with them where they just want to drag you and so you have to be prepared to push back against that and then you have this sort of passive aggressive uh type of interview like tucker carlson likes to do for example where he'll sort of smilingly agree with what you're saying and then he'll kind of try to twist it in a certain direction. So, you know, you'll talk about like the welfare state or building that up or something like that. And he'll nod his head, uh, agreeing. And then he'll say, we just want to do this, but avoid socialism. Or, you know, the the real problem isn't uh, capitalism, it's crony capitalism. He'll add little stuff like that. And so you have to be prepared to push back against 
that kind of stuff as well. But if you can, if you can stay on message and if you can be combative when it's necessary, then I don't see why not. The rule is, is no different than it is on any kind of other liberal or progressive so-called uh, cable news network. Yeah. I, I got another quote here from Sean McCauley. If you would have been quieter on Twitter if Jeff Zients was picked the near Tandon, that's pretty telling. Like, again, starts off with like some t- reference to Twitter. Your first instinct should be, thank God it's not Bruce Reed. <laughs> Don't complain is the message. The, That's the, it. Don't complain. He's saying the quiet like part this. loud. <laughs> nobody, oh yeah, nobody on the left buys this. Nobody's reading this, like nodding their head like, yeah, you're right, Sean. This is everything's going great. Yeah. Uh, we're winning. Didn't they float Reed as like a trial balloon? Isn't he just like exposing the whole project of let's let's float this name that we know that everyone's going to be very, very mad at so we can sneak near a tandem through? Now I'm just trying to find Sean McElwee quotes. There have been so many bad ones. The Reed thing was funny. I don't know how serious talk about that was because if if it wasn't serious, then it absolutely 100% worked. They walked away calling Neera Tandon a win when before, if there hadn't been Bruce Reed floated, people would have been much more skeptical of it. But now, you know, you have uh, people like, and you also have this goalpost shift going on where Data for Progress got on board with this petition to keep Bruce Reed out of uh, the cabinet, out of the administration. But he was, you know, the list that they gave earlier in their progressive cabinet project was just, was not just keep certain people out. It was affirmatively, we want these people in. And so now they're back on their heels saying, okay, well, you know, at least don't put this guy in. And it's just a constant dialing back of expectations and stuff like that. And that's what they're leading the way on. They aren't pushing. They're backing off step by step. The thing that I hate the most is the hypocrisy of someone who dismisses any and all left criticism that they don't like or, the, or that that's that's too um, too hostile to those in power as Twitter bullshit. Uh, the hypocrisy of, of, of someone who does that and then is so obsessed with Carl Bayer <laughs> and Carl Bayer's tweets and a little graphic that Carl Bayer made that they doctor their own documents. <laughs> Just so they can get a single point on the board. One point. Just so they could be one for 13 instead of zero for 13 right now. I don't understand how Sean is pulling rank on anybody anyway. I mean, he's not some, I I think like at this point he has some bachelor's degree in maybe statistics or political science. I can't remember what exactly it is. I know that he was going back to school for something. Um, but you know, this isn't like some renowned political mind with like multiple publications to his name or something like this. This is just another poster who got some funding from the Tides Foundation and people like that. Like that's why yeah. we know him. We don't revere him as some kind of uh, political mastermind or something like that. He's just another poster. <laughs> you know what he reminds me of? He reminds me of Benny Johnson mm-hmm. a lot because Benny Johnson has like no talent no intelligence whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And yet he was a guy who, for this brief period of time before he was fired for plagiarism. Yeah. Again, and that was also another, that was also another phenomenal moment in posting. Yeah. Before he was fired for plagiarism, he was held up as the millennial whisperer. Yeah. As the guy, because he wrote these shitty BuzzFeed articles that like supposedly, like, you know, he cracked the content code. And then, then that, you know, he, he parlayed that you know, after he got fucking fired, uh, into a a job for for right wing media for for fucking you know just like it's there's like Charlie Kirk too it's the same deal mm-hmm. it's like you're just you're just a young person who claims to have the voice the ear of other young people yeah and uh, so so like you'll just like right wing billionaires will just give you money they don't fucking know it like Sheldon Adelson does not know what a Twitter is yeah and Sean McElwee is just a guy who sees that himself filling that you know that that uh, uh, void in the market yeah there's no Nobody selling themselves as the guy who will. Uh, there's nobody else selling themselves as, as as the guy that you can just give money to if you want to pretend to be reaching out to progressives. The article, and I quoted this at the beginning of our conversation. This mm-hmm. is, should this should be good for right now? That are the article I referenced 
was from March of 2020. It was in the Atlantic. Here's a quote. Sanders should start thinking through what outlet he has to draw concessions from Biden. And it's not clear to me that continuing a presidential campaign that does not have a path to victory is one of those options. I think he should think soberly about the reality. I don't think there are any states right now. He is favored to win. This was right after, I believe, Michigan, the Michigan (laughs) primary, where, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, not even half the delegates had been allocated. It's also when COVID had just struck and there was some you know, I don't want to say hope, but there was some feeling that the exigency of this crisis and the reality of what it meant for employer-based health health insurance, you know, how how it was going to expose how tenuous it was, would shift the race in a meaningful way in Bernie's favor. And frankly, I think that it might have if the campaign had kind of leaned on that messaging, kind of talked more about the extent to which the Biden campaign was telling people to ignore CDC advice and go ahead to the polls so they could wrap this up and been more explicit about how, frankly, corrupt it was to pretend as though the race was over when, as you pointed out, Virgil, only half the delegates have been awarded. Remember Cuomo was trying to cancel the New York (laughs) election, the New York primary, and all of these shenanigans were going on. And there was a real narrative that could have been painted, frankly, you know, hindsight's 2020, but there's a real narrative that could have been painted that could have shifted things for Bernie. And here's Sean McElway as one of the members of the chorus calling it. Yeah. I wrote, I actually, uh, at, back in March when COVID was first ramping up, I wrote an article talking about Biden's potential weakness because of that. And I was particularly concerned with the impact of that not being able to execute a normal ground game and not being able to hold rallies and gin up enthusiasm because he had such a big enthusiasm gap with Trump. I was worried about all of that stuff, how that was all going to affect Biden. And that's stuff that wouldn't have hurt Bernie so bad because Bernie was much stronger on all those issues, had a much more enthusiastic base. And, you know, this is all this is all counterfactual at this point. We'll never know. But what we do know is that Biden won by a much slimmer margin than anyone expected him to win. Uh, you know, yeah. the people the people who were expecting him to win were expecting a blowout. Nobody was calling the, a race this close. Yeah, if 50,000 votes in three states had gone the other way, Trump would have won. And not yeah. to mention the down-ballot catastrophe, which can be laid squarely at Biden's feet, as, I'm, as far as I'm concerned. One more, one more reference to Sean McElwee in the media. This is the Huffington Post. Signs have already emerged that Biden's campaign is reaching out to progressives. His team invited Sean McElwee who runs a progressive think tank, Data for Progress, to its headquarters to talk climate policy on Wednesday. You know when that was? You know when that was? Hmm. March 4th. March 4th. So I had my first feud with Data for Progress back then around climate policy because you may remember that I wrote a paper with People's Policy Project uh, promoting international climate funding. And I noticed that on Data for Progress's scorecards for the candidates where they were rating everybody, they gave Biden the same scores they gave everybody else uh, on that. And I was like, you know, why are you not, you know, Bernie has far and away the best plan for international climate funding. How are you comparing him uh, investing $200 billion into this with Joe Biden saying, you know, maybe I'll pay the $2 billion that Obama pledged or something like that. And I could not get Data for Progress to change its scoring at all. And so even back then, I feel like they were really sort of hedging their bets and they were really unwilling to go hard against Biden in a way that might have changed the race. So it's it's just hard to say. They definitely were not neutral uh, in, uh, even though that's what the scoring stuff is posing as. They were definitely making decisions about what they were going to weight in their scoring system and what they weren't. Well, you've proven that you can actually get them get them to change <laughs> some of their information. One last quote. I've just been I've just been digging these up and man, they just get worse and worse. And I have <laughs> to say it. One more quote. One more quote. 
At the end of the day, sorry, I don't know where this is. This is just someone posted this on Twitter. At the end of the day, someone is going to go against Biden or Kamala. And if the socialist left fully ends up lining behind Bernie against Kamala, that's going to be a longer term problem for the socialist left. Sean McElwee with the progressive think tank Data for Progress said, you don't want socialism to be seen as white male identity politics. (laughs) And Warren is able to build a coalition. Warren is white. Warren is Warren white, is like, despite what she might Yo, have you're believed wh- you're white, from dude. her her grandparents' stories. <laughs> I, I, I'm you're, so tired of this thing when white women are, are are put on the same plane as people of color. White women are white. White women voted overwhelmingly for Trump. <laughs> Joe Biden attributes his victory to white women. White women. White women is what he says all the time. White women in the suburbs. Like, what is this? Sorry, I'm sorry. This is the legacy of Clinton 2016. Clinton got every white woman, especially online, thinking that they are some kind of POC. <laughs> they Somebody's abuela? That way. So Sister yeah. Hillary? Yeah. <laughs> like, like it was, it's exhausting. They were talking I'm exhausted. that way before. That was the 2016 thing. That was the first time people started replying to other people on Twitter with your white. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that was the beginning of that becoming a thing. Yeah, that I can remember anyway. Um, I will uh, never forget the well, woman uh, with like a white tears mug who told me that maybe if I knew if I had more black friends, if I knew more black people, uh, then I would have a different opinion about Bernie Sanders. Or 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 the all the all time best was after I wrote my first article, like really my first major article for current affairs about identity politics. There was a write up in the Daily Coast where the person started off saying. This would have been a pretty good article if it hadn't been written by just another white male. <laughs> like the delusion goes deep. To bring it full circle, this is where the um, digital blackface discourse came from, was people were pushing back against the sort of uh, white liberal adoption of a POC identity by replying to the big thing they would do is reply with reaction gifts with black people or they would just be sort of vague about their own identity in a certain way. But this was a direct consequence of that discourse of the sort of Clinton era liberal white women adoption of POC identity. This wasn't something that was really a huge problem on our side over here. And then to think it culminated in Nancy Pelosi and the other freaking elderly white Democrats wearing the African attire. Doing the, the Kente cloth uh, meal. Carl, as we, uh, you know, as we wrap things up here, what do you think the final score is going to be in the Data for Progress cabinet tracker? I think they may get one on the board, at least. Really? Yes. Yeah, so they've been, I forget her name, but I've seen a lot of the Data for Progress people talking about the uh, nominee for Interior. I think her name's Holland or something like that. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Deb uh, Holland. So they've so a lot of them have been tweeting about it and promoting it, and I think that that kind of suggests to me that maybe they've heard something, or maybe they know something. I don't know, but uh, other than that, I think it's going to be very bad. Like I, I would guess maybe they'll get one. One for twenty-six, I think twenty-six. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's a job well Amazing. done. Uh, where can we pushing, donate to uh, <laughs> Sean McKellar's think tank? It, it, this is great. It turns out all Biden's cabinet picks were really progressive and cool. That's wonderful. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. Yeah. Thanks. What's next What's next for Sean McElwee and Data for Progress, Carl? I, You know, I don't, I, I don't know. Like I was uh, mentioning earlier, their funding, I it, they seem to be getting money from tides. They used to have that at the bottom of their yeah. site. And then they removed that. So I don't know if that means they're not getting it anymore. Um, they from, recently from tithes, from tithes like yeah. Are you saying tithes like yeah, yeah. like church? Tides. Yeah, tithes. Oh, like t- no tide. What's, the tides foundation? Yeah. What's the tides foundation? It was founded by a progressive billionaire, right? It's it's uh. Soros aligned. Oh, is that Soros? Oh, he's getting the Soros. It's, it's aligned. Right. It's aligned with him. So basically, <laughs> oh, a fellow Soros uh, funded uh, leftist. It's a way of it's it's a way of sort of that big donors launder uh, a lot of money through sort of this intermediary tides. Um, it's it's basically kind of a that's how I would put it. It just ends up wandering money, so it's hard to track it through there. But they have 
They have that tides money. They've recently aligned uh, themselves with this oil heiress named uh, Leah Hunt Hendricks, who she is on the uh, she's on the byline of the Progressive Cabinet Project. She suddenly had a bunch of bylines, uh, and she's a big donor to these uh, organizations. She has a lot of money, so she's suddenly playing some role in Data for Progress. I'm not sure what, but I am just begging reporters to just find out basic questions about their funding because it's really interesting and we don't know. Yeah, you quote this guy all the freaking time. Yeah. And you, you don't know the fucking, what he does. We don't. I've seen Data for Progress referred to as a consultancy of some kind. I've, I've seen that they have clients. They, and like that is very perplexing to me. They've, they used to position themselves as kind of a uh, people's policy project, like uh, grassroots. Yeah, but with no people. Think tank. <laughs> with no people. <laughs> yeah. There's no people. Yeah. They've moved away from that kind of messaging. They don't act like they're this little shoestring operation that's crowdfunded anymore. But yeah, I'm just, I'm really, really interested to find out like where their money is coming from. I think that they are going to sort of continue with what they're doing. They're going to spend a lot of time running cover for the Biden administration. Um, I think it's going to hurt their credibility over the next four years. And I don't know if that means that they're all going to have to move on to their projects eventually or not, but I just don't see like what the market is for them at this point, because if they keep up the sort of left positioning, then they lose their relevance and access. If they don't keep that up, then they lose their, you know, then they're just another centrist think tank and needs that. So it's a real tightrope act because yeah. you've got to, if you want to keep this going, you have to lodge criticisms of Biden that make you seem oppositional, but are in fact, you know, not even critical. Yeah. Like not even like serious criticisms. Yeah, yeah. Like all of the CBC folks who, with all due respect, are spending a lot of time posturing about how you owe us these appointments, you owe us because of Clyburn, you owe us because black people delivered the vote. But in the next breath, say any person of color will do. And I suspect will largely just suffer in silence over, you know, Marsha Fudge getting uh, HUD instead of Secretary of Agriculture, as long as there are enough black faces in high places. Identity offers a lot of different kinds of covers, but it also enables people to pretend to be demanding a lot and then for the people in charge to be able to deliver in a way that gives you what superficially looks like something, but is absolutely nothing and not an auto departure from the status quo. Yeah. This is one of the few silver linings I think about the Biden administration is it's really going to sort of squeeze out uh, progressive figures and organizations like McElwee who are trying to position themselves in this way. It's just going to become very increasingly untenable for them to do so moving forward. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, it's 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 like in in two thousand nine, how the how the mm-hmm. like the the left blogosphere, yeah. which was like you know the liberal blogosphere, which was the leftmost thing, yeah, like in politics, uh, how they all became incredibly sycophantic towards Obama. Yep, and with with like very very rare exceptions, and now, I mean, it hardens me to see the left saying, "No, we're not going along with this shit." Like Neera Tannen, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, which is just going to just make it like like you said, impossible for a guy like Sean McElwee to you know keep getting the money for his treats. Well, I mean, the thing is, like at the end of the day, though, I think like you know just being a shameless self promoter, like you, that's just how you prosper in America. Yeah, like, this is this is nothing hurts him because he's not accountable to you know to people. If I if me and Bree started saying shit like you know, well, Neera Tannen is the best we're gonna get. Thanks for you know, <laughs> thanks for listening. Like people would stop subscribing to the show. They'd say, what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, you guys are terrible now. So yeah. what you're saying is Sean should know that the money isn't being oppositional. <laughs> yeah. Well, here I don't know. He might be getting way more money than this freaking <laughs> podcast does. <laughs> Carl, uh, it's been really wonderful talking to you. Uh, wonderful having you on the show. Do you have anything you want to plug? No, not really. I guess follow me on Twitter at Carl Bayer. Um, and I have that uh, sub stack that I'm running, which I promote on the Twitter. So just follow me on Twitter. Oh, I didn't know you had a sub stack. Yeah, I have the old blog and I moved it over to uh, Substack a couple months ago. 
something like that. Is it, is it a paid subscription Substack or is it a, a free one? There is a paid tier. Almost, it's still like the overwhelming majority of my stuff is free. But every once in a while, I roll out some kind of uh, subscriber exclusive content on there. Well, hell, that's that's what you should be plugging, not, <laughs> not just the Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, That's, well, uh, absolutely. I did not even know that that existed. Well, I'm going to subscribe. Remind me if I don't. I forget to do a lot of things I say. But I, I, I intend to subscribe because I have enjoyed Carl's writing for many, many years now. Mm. And I think you, the listener, uh, will probably enjoy it as well. So where can they find that sub stack? Uh, just www.carlbayer.com. Maybe you want to spell bear? Yeah, it's C-A-R-L-B-E-I-J-E-R. Dot com. You can also find the link in the description to yeah. this episode, which is now concluding. All right. Unless there's anything else. Well, thanks for having me, y'all. What I'm wearing or anything like that. It's great to talk to uh, both of you. It's been a joy. Thanks. It's nice. always a pleasure, Alan. Nice to put a, yeah, nice to put a voice <laughs> to an Abby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Take her easy, y'all. All right, bye-bye. Take care. Until next time, keep the faith. You bloody motherfucking asshole. Are you bloody motherfucking asshole? 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 Are you bloody...